What I've done is I've asked my friend Peter Roberts to come and share with us around what the Passover is and how he is, he's going to be running this for us. And I've got to tell you, it points to Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus came to Jerusalem as he was about to be crucified and he shared a meal with his disciples in and around this feast. Okay, so this is something that, and can you imagine what it would have been like to share this feast knowing that the one you're looking at across the table is the fulfillment of everything that is in that feast? Wouldn't that be incredible? Well, that's what it is. The Passover, as you will hear, points to Jesus Christ. So I think that as Christians, uh, we don't have to celebrate the Passover, but I think it's helpful. I think we can understand more, and anything that brings me closer to Jesus, I'm in. It's free. Uh, in a couple of weeks' time, it costs you absolutely nothing. Just your time to come along and share this, this beautiful journey with us through history where everything points to Jesus Christ. So I'm excited about that. Would you put your hands together, please, and welcome my friend Peter. Come on up, sir. Love you, man. Go for it. Thank you. Well, thank you, Pastor Darren. After that, I can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> Uh, it's good uh, to be um, here. Can I raise that up, Leanne? Okay. Well, isn't it good to be here? What a wonderful time of worship that we've just had. It is so good, and the choice of songs is just incredible, the way the Lord works, isn't it? To uh, pick what He wants, to worship Him. He revels in the, in the worship of His saints. And he revels in, in things that he has created for us to share in. And he gives them to us as a gift. And he says, come and dance with me. And that's what Passover is all about. It's about a dance. It's incredible. It really is. Let me unfold it a bit for you. In the Bible, the Lord explains in great detail in passages about seven feasts that he gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel and Abraham's seed being us. And there are seven of them. The first of those is Passover, which is always now, about March, April, in our calendar. It was always on the 14th of the first biblical month of Nisan. And these feasts all point to Jesus. That's what they are. They're all the, the time work, the, the platform, the timetable on which God gave for Jesus and his believers and history to unfold upon. So many things happen at Passover. There is weird Jewish thing or something like that. What I've done is I've asked my friend Peter Roberts to come and share with us around what the Passover is and how he is, he's going to be running this for us. And I've got to tell you, it points to Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus came to Jerusalem as he was about to be crucified and he shared a meal with his disciples in and around this feast. Okay, so this is something that, and can you imagine what it would have been like to share this feast knowing that the one you're looking at across the table is the fulfillment of everything that is in that feast? Wouldn't that be incredible? Well, that's what it is. The Passover, as you will hear, points to Jesus Christ. So I think that as Christians, uh, we don't have to celebrate the Passover, but I think it's helpful. I think we can understand more, and anything that brings me closer to Jesus, I'm in. It's free. Uh, in a couple of weeks' time, it costs you absolutely nothing. Just your time to come along and share this, this beautiful journey with us through history 
where everything points to Jesus Christ. So I'm excited about that. Would you put your hands together, please, and welcome my friend Peter. Come on up, sir. Love you, man. Go for it. Thank you, Pastor Darren. After that, I can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, it's good uh, to be um, here. Can I raise that up, Leanne? Okay. Well, isn't it good to be here? What a wonderful time of worship that we've just had. It is so good, and the choice of songs is just incredible, the way the Lord works, isn't it? To uh, pick what he wants, to worship him. He revels in the, in the worship of his saints, and he revels in, in things that he has created for us to share in, and he gives them to us as a gift. And he says, come and dance with me. And that's what Passover is all about. It's about a dance. It's incredible. It really is. Let me unfold it a bit for you. In the Bible, the Lord explains in great detail in passages about seven feasts that he gave to Moses to give to the children of Israel and Abraham's seed, being us. And there are seven of them. The first of those is Passover, which is always now, about March, April, in our calendar. It was always on the 14th of the first biblical month of Nisan. And these feasts all point to Jesus. That's what they are. They're all the, the time work, the, the platform, the timetable on which God gave for Jesus and his believers and history to unfold upon. So many things happen at Passover. There are seven in the year, four about this time, and the last three around the September-October mark. The first four that start now at, Pentecost, uh, at Passover and go to Pentecost 50 days later all involve his first coming 2,000 years ago. He hinges all his life, 33 years, on those four feasts. And the last three, from Feast of Trumpets to Day of Atonement to Feast of Tabernacles, are for his second coming. Right? Because he works in the pattern of the feast. He does not do anything outside the feasts. They are his timetable to enact his program, his platform of redemption for us. It's an amazing thing that, unfortunately, we don't pay enough attention to, I think, in, in history. Heaven's program of redemption is so important. In Passover, he reveals the salvation that Jesus offers to everyone. The first four for the first coming, the last three for the second coming. Let me stress to you, the Lord said in Leviticus 23, these are my feasts. They're not Israel's. They're not Moses. They're not Jewish. They're biblical and they belong to God. He says, I want to share them with you. I own the freehold title to these things, right? The copyright is mine, says God, but I want to share them with you so that you can celebrate them because he says, if you do these feasts, Moses, and all people after him who belong to him, I will turn up. I will draw you to myself in these feasts and I will be there big time. And we will meet and we will celebrate and we will dance together because that's the way he wants it. 
And the Lord said to Moses, my appointed feasts, my appointed times and holy convocations and the, the appointed times, the set times that he says are, are moeds in Hebrew. And he says, this is when it will be. Passover will be the 10th to the 14th of Nisan and then unleavened bread and then first fruits and then 50 days later will be Pentecost. And then when you get to the seventh month on the first day, it'll be the Feast of Trumpets and on the 10th day, it'll be the Day of Atonement and on the fifth day, it'll be the Feast of Tabernacles for eight days. And on the last day, you will rejoice with me because it's a Feast of Rejoicing and it's called Simkatora, Rejoicing Over the Word. He's the Word. He is the Living Word. He is this in the flesh. He is the word of God. And secondly, they are sacred assemblies or holy convocations. And that is they are, they are um, rehearsals. The Hebrew word is mikra. And it means when you do these feasts, you are rehearsing what's coming. Right? So as we celebrate Passover, will there be another Passover? What do you think the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be? Right? We're rehearsing. We're getting ready for his return. We return. He's coming back. Set times and rehearsals. And if God says these are the times, as he does quite clearly in the Bible over and over again, why do we think we can change them? What gives us the right to change his dates? We don't have any right to do that. They're his dates. We are his people. We are his sheep. And the shepherd says where the sheep go and when. Could you put the first slide on for me, Eli? The, the Hebrew word for the Pentateuch, as we know it, is Torah. We know it as the Pentateuch, but Torah is the biblical word or the Hebrew word for it. Passover is central to Torah. Passover is central to Torah. The word Torah has four Hebrew letters that make up the word. And I want to show you what they are and the way God plans this. Thanks, Eli. The first letter in the word Torah is He. Right? And that's how it's written in Hebrew, in Old Hebrew. And it's a picture of a man with his arms up like that. And it means to pay attention to what's coming. A picture of the man looking up because something's about to happen. So look. Next one. The next letter is Raish. It's a picture of the head and stands for the leader or master or the prince. So look up. The head man, the prince. Vav is the third letter. And it means to join or bind together. And is a picture of a wooden peg or an iron nail. And the last one is tav. And it means to seal or to covenant. And it's a picture of crossed wooden sticks or a cross. So if you put them as they're written to form one word, you get this. To reveal the man nailed to a cross. That's the meaning of Torah. And we call it the Pentateuch. What does Pentateuch mean? Five something or others. God says, that's my word I want to give you because it points to the man nailed to the cross. Show us the, the four pictures there, Eli. See that? It's incredible. It's incredible. If you want to do something this afternoon, do a word study on the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in Hebrew, and see what the middle word stands for. It's awesome. 
Awesome. Passover is central to the Torah and the Passover lamb is central to the Passover. In Exodus 5, God told... Thanks, Eli. In Exodus 5, God told... Uh, sorry, Moses tells Pharaoh to let the people go into the desert for three days to celebrate a feast with him. And those three days, God knew, were going to be Passover with unleavened bread and first fruits that was going to come in the promised land. But the word feast there in Exodus 5.1 means to dance and to move in a circle, to revolve, to twirl, to, to be happy. And God says, I want to bring you into the desert, Moses, and my people, that I can dance with you. I want to dance with you in the desert of all places, right? Because in the desert, there's no interruptions, right? There's nothing of normal, busy life. And in two weeks' time, he invites us to meet with him in the Mumbai School of Arts Hall, that he might dance with us, the lover of our souls, to celebrate our deliverance from bondage, because that's what he did with them. You might have heard of a, an American soloist named Paul Wilbur. He has produced an incredible song called Dance With Me, and it's based on Song of Solomon's chapter 2. It's worth putting it on YouTube, Dance With Me by Paul Wilbur, because it is incredible. The words are just so powerful. So they left Egypt on Passover, as you know, in Exodus 12, and they arrived in the Promised Land on Passover in Joshua chapter 5. They were delivered out on Passover and they were delivered in on Passover. And in Joshua 5, I just want to do something here and read you a couple of things and then give you a challenge. On the, as uh, Pastor Darren mentioned before, that Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem just before his crucifixion. He actually came in on the 10th of Nisan, as the Lamb did in Egypt. He came into each house that had a lamb or a, or a goat. And there he was kept in the house for the kids to play with, but they had to nurture that lamb and make sure there was nothing wrong with the lamb because it had to be an unblemished lamb that was sacrificed on the 14th. We must not bring anything to God that is blemished, that is stained. He wants pure offerings. And so this little lamb was nurtured for four days and examined. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan on a donkey, a symbol of peace. If he'd come on a horse, it would be war, but he came on a donkey. And he spent four days in his house, the temple, being examined by the Sadducees and the chief priests and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, trying to find holes in his life, in his teachings and all that sort of thing. But of course, they couldn't find anything wrong with him because he was perfect. In Joshua... Chapter 4, verse 19, it says, The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and camped at Gilgal near Jericho. It's the same day the Lamb was taken into the house. It's the same day Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the tenth of Nisan. And that's when they came out of the Jordan to the plains of Jericho. And God said to Moses, uh, to Joshua, I'm sorry, now you've got to circumcise all the men who were born in the desert, right, to come into the land. And that happened, and then the next day, then they spent three days recovering, and then on the next day, on the 14th, on the, in verse 11, they celebrated Passover in the promised land. The next day, they had uh, unleavened bread and cakes and parched grain. 
and the next day, the feast of first fruits, the manna stopped and they ate from the produce of the land. What's important here is that when they came into the land at this time, in this, this four-day window between the 10th of Nisan and the 14th before they celebrated Passover and they were circumcised and God made an incredible statement in verse in verse 10, 9. And he said, Today I have rolled away the reproach or the stigma of Egypt in you. You spent 400 years in Egypt being oppressed, being bullied, being dirked on, being punished for nothing of your, of your own fault. And you were spat upon and everything else that the Egyptians did to you and you consumed that stuff and it went into your DNA, to your bloodstream. You were there for over 400 years. But now I've brought you out and I've brought you through the desert. Right? And I've brought you to this point. And now you came out at Passover. In three days you're going to go in at Passover and I'm rolling away that stigma. And I think amongst us as believers... There is stigma, there is guilt, there is shame, there's regrets in our life from 40 years ago, whatever. When we first came to the Lord and we thought, I'll just put that one aside. Thank you, Jesus, that you forgive me. But it niggles away. It niggles away at us year after year after year. And we spend 40 years in the wilderness. Oh, we're still with the God's people. We're still doing all that's fine we go through the motions but there's something niggling away and i want to say to you this morning at this time as we approach passover god wants to take the stigma away of your lives that's what he wants he wants to set you free because these people came through one passover and they came to the next Passover. they came out and they came in and they were free because god said they were free and he made the categorical statement i have rolled away your stigma i have rolled away your reproach and that's mighty powerful stuff for us today. And that's what he wants to do with you and me today as we approach Passover. He wants to wipe it clean as it were. I've told the story before, not here so much, but my mother was born in 1912. When she was about six, she lived in southern Gippsland, Victoria. Her mother sent her down to the local lolly shop, Milk Bar, to buy a lolly for her, for my mum Jean and her sister Gwen and her brother Keith. So mum turtled off down the shop and she came back and mum, her mum said, uh, where, where, where's, where's, Keith, where's Keith and Gwen's lollies? Oh, I didn't get them, I just got mine. That niggled at my mum until she was 85. She came to the Lord in 1937, so she was from 1912, whatever that is, in arithmetic. And she came to the Lord, so did Dad. We'd celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, but, and, and not with the leaven of, of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The early church celebrated Passover. Every year, all the feasts, they celebrated the Sabbath every week. Jesus did too, believe it or not, because Jesus was Jewish. All the disciples were Jewish and they kept on being Jewish. They did not get rid of their Jewishness or put it on the back shelf. In John's Gospel, 
chapter 1, John was standing there and he looked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A few verses later he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Not the Saviour or the Messiah or the Redeemer or the Lion of Judah, right? Or our national deliverer for which they were looking or a teacher. They said, Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Because John knew from when he was still in his mother Elizabeth's womb that Mary carried the incarnate Son of God. The Lamb sacrificed from the foundation of the world. No wonder he leaked in his mother's womb because the Messiah just came into his room and he's still in his mum's tummy. Awesome stuff. And in John 1.45, Philip said to Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the Torah and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. In Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall or on a tree. These two guys walk along the day of the resurrection, feast of first fruits, chatting away, troubled, and Jesus joined them. And being a Jew, he asked a question. He said, what are you talking about? And they, being Jewish, replied with a question and said, don't you know? And he, being Jewish, answered with a question, about what? <laughs> and they told him. And he started to explain to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. In Luke 24, 44, a few verses on, just bear with me here. Jewish folk called the Old Testament the Tanakh, which is an acronym, an acronym for the three divisions in the Old Testament. The Torah, or the Pentateuch, the Prophets, and the Writings. And they form this acronym called Tanakh. And in verse 44, Jesus said, All the things that are written about me in the Torah of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms. So he's, he's in every book is Jesus. And he's in the word Torah that we saw on the screen. The Bible is all directed toward Jesus, the Passover lamb. One of the things we're going to celebrate, one of the things we have at, at, at uh, Passover feast is what Jesus had. And that is matzah. I just want to show you this briefly. He had something this, like this or very similar. Now this is matzah, unleavened bread. And every Passover must not have leaven. Now this piece of unleavened bread has got bruise marks on it, as you can see, and it's got holes through it because it's pierced and it's striped. All right? Now the Bible tells us that by his stripes we are healed. By, by, he was bruised for our iniquities and they will look on him whom they've pierced, from Zechariah. Passover is a celebration of deliverance. That's what it's all about. Just for a few minutes. Have I got five minutes, Pastor Darren? <laughs> Darren, hello. <laughs> Secondly, that's a bit about Passover. And look, it's, it's such a, a vast subject. What is Passover? How do you, you know, who is God? How do you describe God? It's such incredible. And this whole thing, the whole feast system that he's pre presented for us that we can join in. So why should we, so we're Gentiles, most of us sitting here, and why should we be in, involved in Passover and on an annual basis at that? Is it relevant to us? How pertinent is it today? And I want to say to you, yes, it is. Be you Jewish or Gentile, and here are some of the reasons. Passover is a picture and the pattern of the death and resurrection of Jesus. As we recall the story in Egypt, 
we see how Jesus mirrored those events. On, on uh, the tenth day of Nisan, Exodus 12 says, the lamb was taken into the home, I said this before, and there it was examined for four days by the family, mum and dad and the kids, and you can imagine the kids getting attached to the little lamb, 12 months old, knowing it was going to be sacrificed on the 14th. And on the same day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem to his house. And just as a Jewish home even today, those who celebrate Passover will clean out all leaven in the house so they can have seven days of unleavened eating. Jesus came in and he went into the temple and he saw the leaven. He saw the money changers. And he said, get out. Get out. This is a house of prayer. Get out. And he was cleansing the temple, even though it had all sorts of problems, but it was still his temple. He evicted those who made his house a robber's den, the opposite to what it should have been. No impurities, of course, or blemishes were found in him, and he was sacrificed on the 14th as the Paschal Lamb. He was, he was hung on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning on Calvary, and exactly the same moment, the high priest down in the temple called out, It's finished! And he sacrificed the first of thousands of lambs. Six hours goes by and Jesus calls out, it's finished! And the high priest called out the same thing at exactly the same time. They probably didn't hear each other. Well, Jesus probably knew. But he was calling out the word nagma, which is a once only word that can be used by the high priest and only once a year. Because Jesus is our great high priest. You see, he's the high priest, the great high priest who replaced the Jewish priest in that place. So like his covenant people, we too are brought out from under the, the yoke of sin. We are freed from bondage, redeemed with outstretched arms and became his people, his treasured possession, his segular. And that's how he looks at you and me. And he says, you are my segular. If your name's in my book, you're my treasured, you're a jewel. You're a jewel. That's how his heart is to us. Secondly, by us celebrating Passover, it's a very early picture of the one new man because Exodus 12, 38 says that a mixed multitude came out with all the people. It wasn't just Hebrew people, a mixed multitude of Egyptians and Syrians and Libyans and who knows what else, Africans, whatever. It doesn't say, it just says a mixed multitude. And what's interesting is that this word mixed means woof or weft. You know what that is? It's on a loom. And the other part of it is the warp, right? And you picture a loom, square wooden frame, and all the vertical strands fastened top and bottom. And God is saying here that my people are the warp. They're the fixed strands. And the mixed multitude that I, the weaver, have, has, have in my hand says, God, I'm going backwards and forwards with the shuttle, and I'm weaving you Gentiles into my covenant people. And I'm making a tapestry here, so just watch it. And he calls them the woof. And you see that over in the, the opposite, not the opposite, the manifestation that is, is in, a, in, is in uh, Ephesians 3, where Paul's been talking to those Ephesian people about their status in Christ and their relationship to the Hebrew people. And he says this, that this is, um, he's talking about the mystery, and he says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow heirs with who? with the Hebrew people who come to Messiah. Right? We're not fellows with one another, not in this sense. 
Okay? And he says, so that, oh, sorry, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that, they get this, you're on show, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And right now in heaven, they're looking at each other and they're looking at the Lord. Nudge, nudge. Look what he's doing with the people at Ignite. Look, look, look what he's doing with those Jewish believers over there. He's bringing them all together to show them off to the heavenly realm as to his power and what Passover accomplishes because it's a bringing together of Jew and Gentile. We're never designed to be apart. There's no such thing as dual covenant, one for the church, one for the Jews. Rubbish. It's not biblical. Okay? And we are, we are, just, we are woven in as, the, as he makes the tapestry. And in Romans 11, you see it with the, with the olive tree, the wild olive tree being the Gentiles, grafted into a natural cultivated tree. And horticulturally speaking, that's impossible. As you know, if you're a gardener, you can't do that. He did. He is. Because both Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus the Messiah make up the bride of Christ. Thirdly, recalling the Passover. And this is so important to get this. Reminds us of the, of the Lord in Exodus. And our texts, unfortunately, don't show the whole picture in our Bibles. So you've got to do a little bit of digging. The Lord came along. They'd applied the blood, right? To the lintel and the post and they had it across the bottom. Do you know why? Because at the start of each house there was a trough. And that was called the basson. And our Bibles call it the basin. It's not as a basson. And that's where they killed the lamb that was 12 months old. The blood drained out in a few minutes. And then dad came along with the hyssop and he dabbed it all around the doorway. So the four sides of the whole, whole, whole uh, doorway are covered in the blood of the lamb. The Lord comes along. And our Bible said he passed over the houses. I say to you, he passed over the threshold into each house because the blood was on the doorposts. That's the only way he could do it. He entered into their homes because of the blood. And then 1223 of Exodus says he issued a legal term which is called a pretermission. And a pretermission was, in this case, was a judicial divine decree, if you will, forbidding the destroying angel to enter each house. And he put up a sign, if you like, no entry to the destroyer. Why? Because he was inside. The blood's there. So how do you think you are today if the blood of the Lord is on your heart and he's inside and he's put up a sign saying no admittance to the devil? Now, he'll still come around, he'll throw stones on your roof, and he'll let your tires down, he'll cut your hose, whatever. But he can't get in, and he can't evict the Son of God who's living inside you because of the blood on the doorposts of your house. Fourthly, when Jesus and his disciples met for the annual Passover in the upper room some 2,000 years ago, they were recalling the deliverance from Egypt of their forebears. And as the Hebrews had done that for hundreds of years, and only Jesus knew what the next 24 hours would be. He knew what was coming. He knew what Judas was about to do. And Judas would be sitting there biting his nails like mad, I would think. And here during this Passover, we know it's a Passover because the disciples said, Lord, where are we going to celebrate the Passover? Time's approaching. And here at this Passover, Jesus changed the traditional partaking of bread and wine in the Passover into, some, into representing his body and blood, which were about to be sacrificed. He knew. And our communion service, as simple as it is, comes from that Passover. 
It doesn't come from anything else. It comes from Passover. And we have a very condensed version, if you like, through the funnel of what happened in that upper room so long ago. Another reason we should, we should celebrate it. God told his people over and over and over again to remember. Remember, remember, remember. And he told them in Exodus 10 and 13 and other places to make sure the fathers among you tell their sons and their grandsons the events about take place because we will forget. And because we're grafted into the inn, the same thing applies to us. We're to tell our sons and our grandsons about the Egyptian exodus and especially about our own deliverance. And we should be celebrating our deliverance. God repeats over and over again to remember. Lastly, and this may be subjective, but it's okay. Every time God's people celebrate any of his feasts, from the weekly Sabbath to the annual feast, God turns up. We as a family have seen this for many, many years, both here in Australia and in Israel, where we live for a year. The presence of the presence is palpable. His presence loves to permeate a group of people who are celebrating his feasts. He delights to see his people sharing what he ordained. And he wants to join us. He will be joining us in two weeks. He'll be there. He loves it. He said, this is my feast. It's not yours, Ignite. It's not mine. It's not Darren's. God, my feast, says God. And I'm giving it to you to celebrate when we celebrate. There's a very famous... He might have passed on by now, American preacher named Dick Rubin. And he made a very poignant statement many years ago. And he, I think he wrote a book about it. And he said this, when the pattern is right, the glory falls. Right? When the pattern is right, the glory falls. The feasts are God's pattern for redemption. Okay. Jesus on the cross was not in a vacuum. He was fulfilling Passover. He knew that. And that's why he's buried as unleavened bread. On the third day, the Feast of First Fruits, he rose again, as he had to rise on that. He couldn't rise on that four days later or too early because he had to fulfil the feasts, right? And then the 50 days later, the Feast of Pentecost, they all come together and he breathes on them. And this became something in the heart instead of the head. And he burned himself, etched himself into their hearts and beings so that they exploded with power that's why the feasts are so important that's why all of them are important the bible says there are three main feasts what's called the pilgrim feast passover pentecost and tabernacles and the bible tells you that all jewish men were required to attend those three feasts every year they still do they still do they don't sacrifice a lamb so there's no temple but we, the songs this morning were just so perfect about the Lamb of God, you see, who was the Paschal, who was the Passover Lamb. And the things in, in Exodus 12 laid the foundation, set the pattern, set the blueprint for him to fulfill. And so he celebrates deliverance. He brought them out and he brings us out to bring us in, right, into his presence. In his presence. That's where we belong. In his presence. Agreed? Let's pray. Lord God, what an awesome God you are. What an awesome, what an amazing creator you are, not just of the planets and the earth and all that, but the, the, the creator of, of salvation, of the, of the paschal lamb, 
of the pattern that you've made, the blueprint, the designs that you do, the plans that you drew up, and you love to be involved in their fulfilment. Thank you for that, Lord. As we said this morning, as we're singing and in prayer, Lord, we, we say thank you for being who you are. Thank you for stepping down into our little world and sweeping us up into your arms that we might know the joy of deliverance to come out of Egypt. And even if some of us are still in the desert, Lord, that you'd work on our hearts to remove the stigma of past events, of past hurts, of past actions that we regret. But Lord, you came to set us free from those things that we would walk in fullness, the fullness of God. Thank you, Lord, for this time we can share this morning of worship and communion and hearing about the new building and all that sort of thing, Lord, and about your feasts. Thank you for the dance that's coming in two weeks. How special, how special. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The, um, don't forget to register with Denise over there in the corner. And um, it's cost you nothing, as Darren said. And it'll be a great time. Really will. Hand back to you. Hey, why don't you put your hands together for Peter. Thank you for sharing that. And there's more to come. And uh, I'm fascinated with the, uh, the unleavened bread there. Isn't that incredible? There's lots of that cool sort of stuff coming. Uh, one of the things that touched me today, this morning, that you shared was the story of your mother. 79 years she bore the shame of that one event as a six-year-old. And uh, I was just thinking in the book of Romans, it says this. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And uh, I just sense that as we, as we wrap uh, this morning up, um, I think that some of us need to do business with God as far as shame. We know that we've accepted Jesus into our life. We know that he's forgiven us. But sometimes the shame doesn't go, does it? Sometimes there's stuff that just hangs around and hangs around and, and uh, the enemy sort of you know, trundles it out and beats us over the head with, this every, with it every so often. Even though we know we're forgiven, even though we, it may not have been our fault, we still carry the shame. And so I think this is a moment that we can just press into that and say, Lord, I need you to set me free. Are you with me? Why don't you just bow your heads where you are? Father, I just pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will start to examine our lives. Lord, that you would touch our lives. There are things that we've done. There are uh, things that we've been a part of. There are things that we've said, comments that we've made, opinions that we've shared. Maybe something that it was even done to us was out of our control. But Lord, there is shame there. And Father, your word says that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, that you will roll back the reproach of your people. So right now, Lord, we want to be those people to whom the, the, the reproach of shame and guilt is rolled back. So just examine your heart right now. <coughs> Word of God says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. I can't see into your life, but he can. And you can see into your life. You know what you've grappled with, what you've struggled with, what has brought you shame. But today is the day we are set free. Today is the day that that shame and that reproach is rolled back forever. So if you've got something in your heart that, that is constantly dredged up, 
I want to give you the opportunity to give that to the Lord and let him roll that back. If you are struggling with that at the moment, I'm going to ask you to stand wherever you are. You don't have to tell us what it is you're ashamed of. I'm just going to ask you to stand. I'm standing here because there's things that I've done that I struggle with. Just stand wherever you are. And we're going to give our shame and our reproach to the Lord. Come on, there's more than one. What is it that you've grappled? What is it that you struggle with? You look back and you, and you just feel shame. You just feel hurt. You feel guilt. You feel something like that. Just take a few moments. Are there any more who would stand and we would just give that shame and that reproach to the Lord right now? Whatever it is, maybe it's something you've done. Maybe it's something no one knows about. You don't have to tell anyone, but there's stuff in there that constantly niggles, that constantly just brings shame to your life. Even if no one else knows, just take a few moments to do that. If you're standing, pray this with me. Say, Lord, I know that this sin has brought shame into my life. But right now, Lord, I pray that you will forgive me of my sin. And roll this reproach right off of my life. Lord, I give you this shame. I place it at the foot of the cross. And I will not pick it up again. Corrie Ten Boom says that the Lord throws our sins into the sea of his forgetfulness. And he puts up a sign that says no fishing. So when you give it to him this morning, there's no fishing. You can't go back and dredge it up. If the devil tries to throw it in your face, you just laugh at him and say, that's no longer part of me. I don't need to deal with that anymore. It's gone. The reproach has been rolled back. Lord, I thank you that you have just worked miracles in people's life, even now, even stuff that's been there for years. Shame that we've grappled with for years. But Lord, I pray that each of these people will be totally set free from that shame and from that guilt and from that reproach in the name of Jesus Christ. That by your spirit, Lord, you will make a way where no one else can make a way. Lord, that you would roll that back from their life so that they would live entirely shame-free and guilt-free from this moment on. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ.